0: You're back. I, I forgot to mention at the beginning of the program that there's more going on in the sky than that uh, passing asteroid 14. If you look west after sunset, you will be treated this time of year to the planet Mercury. It's kind of hard to see Mercury. It turns out that if it's going to be west of the sun around this time of year, it makes the most favorable viewing. This has to do with how the plane of the planets is tipped relative to the horizon. Right now, it's tipped more or less Well, about as straight up as it gets, which is why the horns of the moon have tended to point straight up. But between now and February 21st, Mercury will be visible out in the west with a rather pink hue to it. Not because it's pink, but because, well, the pink glow of the sky will tint the planet's appearance. All right, let's talk about some local news. There's an item here where three great local institutions uh, are on the same page. That being the Sacramento News and Review, whom we're glad to have as an alternative newspaper, some of the fine investigative pieces they do, as well as the Sacramento Bee, we want to commend the McClatchy organization for being one of the few that will, you know, rise to uh, to not going with the herd on on certain issues, unlike the uh, the New York Times and Washington Post, whom we mentioned earlier in the in the broadcast. McClatchy was not swallowing the Bush administration line about the need for a war in Iraq, like like some other institutions. And uh, the third group in agreement on this particular local issue would be Radio Parallax. We all seem to be in sync on the fact that the approval of the Cordova Hills development is, uh, well, it's a bad thing. But before I quote from those papers, let me quote from a letter to the editor. this case to the B, by a man named Frank Casanova in Sacramento, who wrote, Regarding approval of Cordova Hills is a body blow for smart planning, from the editorials, something is really beginning to smell here. The Cordova Hills project has every reason to be rejected, yet four of our illustrious county supervisors went ahead and okayed the project. I'd say follow the money. It's obvious now which supervisors seem to be in the developers' pockets. Remember this in the next election. And in that editorial, February 3rd in The B, Susan Peters, Don Notal, Jimmy Yi, and Roberta McGlashan are all shown in photographs under a question asking, is this our region's future? Noted The B Editorial Board, over the past decade, the Sacramento area has received national attention for its regional blueprint, a cooperative effort by local governments to guide growth in a way that benefits both the economy and environment, without the kind of state-mandated growth boundaries found in other states. On Tuesday evening, the Sacramento County Board of Supervisors all but shredded the blueprint. Against the warnings of the architect of this regional plan, Mike McKeever, executive director of the Sacramento Area Council of Governments, four of five supervisors approved Cordova Hills— a 2,700-acre development that violates both the spirit and letter of the region's planning principles. Adopted by SACOG in 2004, the blueprint emphasizes agricultural preservation and conserving resources and protecting species. Yet much of the commercial development plan for Cordova Hills would be on sensitive vernal pools. That's inconsistency number one. The blueprint also emphasizes use of existing assets, in other words, a priority of infill over development of vacant land. Cordova Hills is a vast expanse of undeveloped ranch land that until last Tuesday sat outside the county's urban policy area. That's inconsistency number two. Finally, the blueprint emphasizes contiguous instead of detached development. Yet the county approved Cordova Hills ahead of some other proposed projects closer to existing light rail stations and existing job centers. That's inconsistency number three. The B notes that there's still a decent chance that Cordova Hills will never be built because developers must get federal permits for destroying habitat. I must say, at lunch today I heard a fairly hair-raising story about what a prominent local developer was able to do in chopping down heritage oak trees by cutting a deal with uh, local governments about opening up some other green areas. We're going to try and track that story down. But sounding off on the same issue in the Sacramento News and Review Frontlines section by Rahim Hosseini with the following comments. It's a process as time-honored as it is ass-backward. Construct a massive development, then worry about filling it with people and businesses later. The interests behind a nearly 2,700-acre housing and retail development known as Cordova Hills want approval to do just this by baiting elected officials with a promised university they've yet to deliver on. Noted Hosseini, only one supervisor thought this wasn't such a good idea. Citing a glut of residential lots in the area and a glut of vacant retail space, Supervisor Phil Cerna told the News Review he didn't see a need for Cordova Hills, Especially once the notion of a university became speculative at best, the News Review editorial board noted that what's truly head-scratching about this is that by greenlighting this very ungreen housing slash commercial slash retail slash unlikely university campus development, Sacramento will likely lose millions of dollars in federal and state funding. This is because in 2008. Senate President Pro Tem Daryl Steinberg and the legislature passed Senate Bill 375, which mandates meaningful greenhouse gas emissions reductions for passenger vehicles in California. If Sacramento doesn't meet benchmark reductions, which will happen according to studies if Cordova Hills is built, then Sacramento is expected to lose buku bucks. The editor said SNNR hopes that Cordova Hills suffers death by lawsuits. And then in the future, the aforementioned Board of Supervisors are a hell of a lot smarter about growth in the region. Of course, things could be worse. We could be living in North Korea, which apparently uh, was doing some celebrating this week of the Chinese New Year by blowing off another atomic bomb. And so happens that The Economist magazine has a cover story on the change they hope will come to North Korea. A quote from their editorial board Kim Jong-un's grandfather, Kim Il-sung, built his post-war paradise in the North on a principle of juche, or self-reliance, though the Soviet Union greatly helped. At first, the North and South Korean economies matched each other one for one. But starting in the 1970s, the North decayed into inefficiency. The North's huge army hogged resources— Managers and workers stripped state factories bare and flogged anything of value on new black markets. Today, perhaps 200,000 North Koreans remain imprisoned in the gulag. Output per head is 17 times less than in the South. And it's been noted that 20-year-old South Koreans stand 2.4 inches higher than North Korean contemporaries, which have been stunted by famine and malnutrition. Economist does note that in North Korea, watching illegal South Korean and American TV dramas smuggled in from China does happen. They get shared among friends on memory sticks, which they plug into black market computers, some of them made by South Korea's Samsung. Now, we made passing mention some time ago about an article in New Scientist about going to North Korea. I did not have my hands on it then. I do now. This comes from the November 24th edition of New Scientist. And talks about the eco catastrophe that is North Korea. The author Keith Bowers was part of a trip sponsored by the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Bowers notes that the North Koreans looked around their country and, and came to realize they apparently need some help in resource management. Picture in the magazine shows a desert like terrain. Captioned, the North Korean landscape is severely eroded, stripped of trees, and devoid of wildlife. It's an interesting article, and I recommend it. I'm going to quote from it a little bit here. Mr. Bowers notes that uh, their cell phones were confiscated upon arrival, put in a plastic bag for them to collect upon their way back home. They were allowed to keep laptops and cameras, but nothing with a GPS or satellite tracking. Once inside, he noted that access to the internet was all but impossible. To quote from the piece, "'Information on the state of North Korea is hazy. More than 80% of their land is mountainous and once harbored dense, deciduous, and coniferous forests. Most of the rest is rolling countryside with deep, narrow river valleys and a wide range of coastal habitats.'" Until the Korean War began in 1950, forest cover was apparently plentiful enough to provide wood for fuel and other forest products, plus ecosystem services such as regulating water runoff, stabilizing steep slopes and supporting diverse flora and fauna. But after the ceasefire in 1953, the landscape that had worked in balance with human cultivation for thousands of years began to decline. In the 1990s, disaster struck. The fall of communism in Russia and China's dash for capitalism led to a downward economic spiral. Widespread food and fuel shortages forced people to turn to the forests for their basic needs. At the same time, devastating storms and floods ravaged much of the country. That was 15 years ago, and the landscape is still in a state of shock. Most of the country is deforested, save for a very few steep slopes and some protected areas. Erosion, sedimentation, and habitat loss are pervasive, and many watersheds are ecologically lifeless. The environment is now near total collapse. Conditions are so bad that even the notoriously closed North Korean state has been forced to acknowledge that it needs its outside help and that's why we were there. Sounds like it was a very bizarre conference held in Pyongyang. Byros says that dialogue was limited. They asked few questions and informal conversations were heavily discouraged. During breaks, lunch, and at the end of sessions we were directed to separate rooms. Some of us were able to strike up limited discussions during lulls in the presentations and chance meetings which confirmed for me the North Koreans' desire to embark on more meaningful discussions if only they were given time and approval. But the constant presence of government officials was stifling. Bowers notes that traveling through Pyongyang was depressing, the city supposedly for the elite and privileged, but poverty and poor living conditions were everywhere. Power outages occurred almost every night between midnight and dawn. It was not uncommon to see bonfires on high-rise balconies at night, presumably lit for warmth. People in every walk of life appeared crushed by poverty and total government control. Pretty scary stuff. Also, makes it rather hard to believe that North Korea is any kind of local threat to, say, Japan or South Korea or anybody else in the area. But uh, (laughs) before leaving the topic of North Korea, I can't help but refer to uh, an article also from November 24th, but in this case from The Economist, about how. In North Korea Chinese Maoists find the land of their dreams. The article describes how in North Korea you can observe Chinese tourists coming in on buses to pay respects to the spirit of Mao Zedong and, uh, and the government of North Korea, which they feel has followed in his footsteps properly. The article describes how Mao Zedong's son, Mao Anying, died during the Korean War and uh, there is a bust of his eldest son, which is kind of a shrine for the Chinese Maoists. Some were described as weeping as they delivered speeches in honor of the younger Mao, saying, quote, We must clean China up and turn it a brilliant red, to quote from one tourist. Another led the group in chants of, Socialism will be victorious. Note of the piece, for most of the members of the group of 15 tourists, except one who was there to report for The Economist, the visit to North Korea was a welcome relief after a grim year. As diehard Maoists, they believe that Chinese leaders are betraying the ideals of the communist country's founder and leading it to enslavement by the West and perdition. The past few months have seen the purging of their idol, a Mao-quoting member of the Politburo, Bo Lai, and the closure with the Chinese government of some of their most outspoken websites. Many of China's new middle class regard the Maoists as members of a nutty fringe. But to the poor and marginalized, as well as a few idealistic intellectuals, naturally, their views are appealing. During their four days in North Korea in October, the Maoists found a country that appeared to be following the right path, one that, in their view, Mao had started down, but which his diminutive successor, Deng Xiaoping, had abandoned. I have to admit that uh, I was appalled when Chairman Mao died back, I think it was in 1976, and several professors here at UC Davis got together to honor the great helmsman. And speaking of China, you may have noticed last Sunday that the 2013 National Intelligence Estimate claims that China is engaged in a massive, sustained cyber espionage campaign against American businesses and institutions for their own economic gain. According to the Washington Post, Ellen Nakashima, Nearly every sector of the American economy is being targeted by Chinese hackers, including energy, finance, information technology, aerospace, and automotives. Outside experts estimate business losses from hacking amounts to tens of billions of dollars. We're going to try and follow that story. And I guess since we're on an Asian theme at this point, let's talk about uh, Japan, the Japanese economy, as as you may know, has been kind of in the doldrums for quite some time, probably pushing on its second decade by now. And with the rise of China in the region, uh, the Japanese are kind of nervous about this at this point, point. and apparently the pessimism is proving infectious. A piece by Chico Harlan in the Washington Post notes that as Japan has failed to carry out meaningful re- reforms after being hit by the March 2011, triple disaster of earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear plant meltdown. Well, some think the country's not just in a prolonged slump, but may also be in an inescapable decline. The piece notes there's frequent evidence for that in economic data and in the country's destiny to become ever smaller, doomed by demographics that will shrink the population from about 127 million today to 47 million in 2100, according to government data. I don't know. That would still give uh, Japan, which is slightly smaller than California, a population, what, 10 million larger than California? We're managing okay. seems pretty clear to a lot of people that for the Earth to survive, we're going to have to uh, not continue to grow in population. This is going to cause some economic uh, chaos along the way, but probably less than trying to grow the population of the world up to 9 or 10 billion which is pretty much guaranteed to cause a catastrophe. Of course, if we're hoping for help on this from economists, good luck with that. Although it's far from a perfect metaphor, I do have to say at this point in my life that economists kind of remind me of the wisecrack made about people you hire to be advisors who come in, borrow your watch, tell you what time it is, and then walk off with the watch. <laughs> Let's say that, again, that the older I get, the more I tend to regard the so-called science of economics as being analogous to astrology since all of its modeling and calculation inevitably seem to be based on some harebrained assumptions. But rather than go off on a diatribe about that, I think I'll just say that you know, we need to have some new ideas about how to model our economies in the wake of stable populations or even decreased populations. We do know historically that uh, you know, good things did come out of population drops, After plagues swept uh, across the world, particularly in Europe, wages went way up because, well, people couldn't be treated as serfs like they had been in the past. They actually now had to be paid a decent wage. What a concept. But uh, I do do worry about Japan a little bit, uh, particularly when I see a blurb like this one. I didn't date this piece, but it's a couple months old, but... Anyway, Dateline Tokyo, a top official, hinted Thursday that Japan's newly installed conservative government might seek to revise a two-decade-old official apology to women forced into sexual slavery during World War II, a move that would most likely outrage South Korea and possibly other former victims of Japanese militarism. Speaking a day after the new cabinet was named, Chief Cabinet Secretary Yoshihida Suga, who serves as the government's top spokesman, refused to say clearly whether the new prime minister, Shinzo Abe, would uphold a 1993 apology. Suga said at a news conference that it would be, quote, desirable for experts and historians to study, unquote, the so-called Kono Statement, which acknowledged the Imperial Army's involvement in forcing thousands of Asian and Dutch women to provide sex for Japanese soldiers. Most historians say the women were coerced and not prostitutes, as Abe and other nationalists have claimed. All right, let's bring the discussion back home to America here briefly before the break and talk about the fact that uh, Jerry Brown, (laughs) I just love this piece in the Sacramento Bee, Jerry Brown put on a flannel shirt and traveled up to Calusa to make a pitch for those big water tunnels he wants to build to stick a giant straw in our California Delta to ship yet more water south to Southern California real estate developers. Although that's not, I guess, how Jerry phrased it. But I love this piece by David Siders in the February 7th B, noting that uh, after Brown gave a talk, he toured the farm show, sat on a tractor, and announced that he will build a house on family land nearby. Yeah, in Calusa. Even his Second cousin's reaction suggested how difficult it may be for Brown to find support among area farmers for his $14 billion plan to build two tunnels to divert water around the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta to the south. Noted the piece, appearing at a farm show in a rural, relatively tiny county is indicative of how significant the project is for the governor. <laughs> Brown apparently said he'll be coming back a lot to make sure that any concerns and objections can be handled. Will Governor Brown, I don't necessarily presume to speak for Calusa Valley farmers, who I'm sure have their own questions of how it is they're going to be helped by sending water south instead of to their farms. But on behalf of fishing interests in the Delta and farmers in the Delta, I do have to ask the question that we've been asking on this program for, I don't know, what, five years now? I don't know, years, years and years. But that question is, How are you going to improve the fisheries and improve the farms in our Delta region by removing water from the rivers that feed them? Because it seems to us that if the fisheries are doing poorly, you cannot improve them by taking the water away. And we admit we could be wrong about that. Perhaps there's something we haven't thought of. So we ask our governor, Jerry Brown... To please clear this up for us, Governor, you have a standing offer to come on this program and explain how that's going to work. Chris, we have to wonder: Wouldn't it be great if Jerry Brown did build a house out in a ranch near Williams in Calusa County that's part of his family and set out to retire out there, and the place dried up like the Sahara because California's water was being shipped down to Riverside County to <laughs> promote more real estate speculation? That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Why is everybody always picking on me? Mr. Millen, we're talking about Jerry Brown, not Charlie Brown. Anyway, we need to take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Stay tuned for segment three. We need to talk about uh, Richard III, among other things. Teach your daddy yo Charlie Brown Charlie Brown He's a clown That Charlie Brown He's gonna get caught Yes you wait and see why is everybody always picking on me?